So the book of Galatians talks about Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. So biblical scholars think that Moses actually got the law in Saudi Arabia, and he lived there for 40 years. Paul, after his Damascus Road conversion, says he went down to Arabia, and he developed some of his theology there. So Saudi Arabia, biblically, is very interesting because both Moses and the law and Paul and everything that comes out of the epistles was formed in that desert environment. After all the years went by and Islam was born in Saudi Arabia, we have the emotional and the religious center of all the Muslim world right there in Mecca. And so from the Arabian Peninsula, Islam has spread out into all the world and is now about almost one quarter of the world's population. And as Saudi goes, so goes the Arab world. As the Arab world goes, so goes the Muslim world. And what happens in the Muslim world affects all of the globe. A few years ago, we were looking at the landscape of the Arab world, the countries where we didn't have church planning presence. And Saudi Arabia was one of the preeminent ones with all of its strategic value, but nobody was really quite ready to go in and lead it. So somewhat flippantly, I said to Jen, well, why don't we go? And Saudi's in this time of flux. There's a new crown prince, the economy's changing, the demographics are changing, the country's opening up. So it's a real season of opportunity. We feel like there is an openness in Saudi that's never been before. 75% of Saudi is under the age of 26. And with technology, there's a whole new way of reaching Saudis. And so we want to be a part of that. We want to go back to being boots on the ground church planners, and we want to see Saudis come to Jesus. There's not a, a line of people waiting to get into Saudi Arabia to tell them about Jesus, so we're willing to do that. see the gospel go forward to the ends of the world and unreached people groups, we're going to have to do something significant in the Arab world, and we're going to have to see God move mightily in Saudi Arabia. Now, in order to get into Saudi Arabia, because it is a Muslim-majority country, we need to offer something credible to the community. And so we're starting a business, and it will serve through education, through leadership development, through some religious tourism, and other components like that. And all of that requires some capital investment. And so what you guys are doing is helping us establish this business so that we can, in a very winsome and professional way, have presence that is legal, that allows us to open our mouths and talk about Jesus. So we're just so thankful for the opportunity to partner with you guys in seeing the Lord do something for His name and for His kingdom in Saudi Arabia. everybody. How you doing? It's good to see you this morning. Uh, I get the joy of, as, as a pastor, to be able to go to some different countries with a group of pastors called the Stone Table. And uh, about 18 months, two years ago, I got to go to the UAE and we were in Dubai. They brought the missionaries from those, from various countries you can't get into, but brought them together. And, uh, and we got to meet some of of those incredible people that are on the ground in difficult places, very difficult places. 
and uh, just hear what they needed and see how uh, we could respond as a group of churches. Many of those churches are Indiana churches, but how could we respond to help our missionaries have everything they need that to, to the best of our ability to go help them strategically uh, win that country for Jesus? And while we were there, we learned, we got to sit down with Dick Brogdon. It was an absolute joy, and we got to see the very seriousness of how lost those places are. How very few, there, there are countries that there may not be 50 to 100 believers in the entire country. Can you imagine that? On your way to church today, you drove by lots of churches. We're glad you came to worship with us, but just think about all of the opportunity that our world has here in the United States. If you want to know something about Jesus, you have access to him. Now I want you to imagine a different country where there's no way you could get a Bible in your language if it's even legal for you to have it. There's nobody that you'd know how to talk, you know, who to talk to. And Jesus is doing some incredible things in the world. He's showing up to Muslims. They, they call him the man in white. People having visions and all of a sudden just encounters with Jesus because Jesus' heart beats for the lost. And while we were there, we, we uh, sat underneath of Dick Brogdon just teaching us about what is our strategy? How are we going to, as the, the body of Christ, remember that the gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against us, which means we're supposed to go offensively to go take the world back for Jesus. And, and so how are we going to do that? I sat in, I felt like I sat underneath a professor. I, I didn't remember this course quite since Bible college when I, when I took it. But I, 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 now you know, I'm listening and I'm going, oh, that's the strategy. That's what we need to do. And, and he, he, he preached a message that I, I've asked him, hey, will you come and share that message with the people of Life Church? Because I wish you could have all been in that room. So since we can't take you all there, we brought him to us. And uh, I know that today's going to be a challenging word for all of us, but you didn't come to church to be bored or to be boring or to do nothing. You came to the church so that you could be inspired and released upon this world. Amen? Amen. That's what Life Church is about. Would you welcome with me, give a warm Life Church welcome to Dick Brogdon. Love you. Would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11? We'll be looking at verse 12 through 20 in a moment. <clears throat> when I was seven years old, I went to boarding school. I was a missionary kid born in Kenya, East Africa. It was a great school. It was a British school. I studied Latin and French in the fourth grade, learned to play cricket, field hockey, rugby, part of the Boy Scouts, dramas, music. It was fantastic. We would go to school for three months, and then we would go home for one month. As wonderful as school was, wasn't home. And so at the end of that three-month term, I'd pack up my little travel kit bag, so excited to go home, and go sit on the stone steps of school and fix my eyes on the corner of the road around which my father would come to take me home because all my little heart wanted to do was go home 
that is still all my little heart wants to do. This world is not our home. America is not your home. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We are aliens. We do not belong here. And one day, the trumpet is going to sound, and the Lord is going to descend, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed, and corruption shall put on incorruption, and we shall ever be with the Lord. And I long for that day. And that's the single most important reason that I am a missionary because I want to go home. Paul put it this way in Philippians. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And I don't know which one will be chosen for me, he says, but this I know, to be with Christ is far, far better. Have you forgotten where your home is? And are you fighting for the wrong home? My hope, my prayer today, is that there will be men and women in this room, watching online, who would have a little bit of fire ignited in them to say, I want to go home, and I will fight for that to the ends of the earth to bring back the king. That fire, that fight, is what I refer to as apostolic nasty. Turn to your neighbor and say apostolic nasty. Now, before you think I'm talking about being gross or about being crude or disgusting, I'm talking about a different type of nasty applied to the mission of God, focusing on Jesus. And let me explain it this way. Do you know the term or the person? Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, Larry Bird right here from Indiana. You know these guys? What made them win multiple championships? At the level of professional athletics, Everybody's awesome, everybody's incredible, have the same coaches, have the same training rooms, have the same private jets, the same diets, the same physiotherapists, have access to all of that, but what made those guys win multiple championships? They had something nasty up here. And they weren't just gonna win game seven of the NBA Finals or the championship bouts in boxing or the Masters in Augusta. They were gonna beat your butt in practice they were going to beat you at tiddlywinks. They were going to beat you first in line on the bus to get the best seat. They were going to take your lunch money and enjoy doing it. Why? Because they were nasty. They had that little bit of edge that they wanted to win at everything all the time. It was in their psyche. It was what they were made of. We need men and women like that today, but to apply that to the glory of Jesus globally. My definition of apostolic nasty is this, a consecrated edging, not a carnal one. I'm not asking you to be mean or ugly or political. A consecrated edginess that fixates on Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. And I see precedent for this in the life of Jesus, Paul, others. Let's look at Mark chapter 11. Beginning in verse 12 through verse 20, I won't read the text for time, but I'll just tell you the story. It's the last week in the life of Jesus. 
he's entered Jerusalem, his heart is passionate to die for the sins of the world. And you know how the temple was constituted? The center was the Holy of Holies, one man, the high priest, once a year. Then the holy place where ministry of the priest would happen. Then there was something called the court for the Jewish men, Jewish women. But the outermost part of the temple mount was called the court of the nations or the court of the Gentiles. And it is there that Jesus enters brimming with passion to redeem all the peoples of the world. And when he enters the place that was designated by God for the Gentiles to meet with Jehovah, what does he find? It's been turned into a marketplace. And the great mission's heart of Jesus erupts. And I don't know what your view of Jesus is, but he wasn't a white man. He wasn't uh, always composed. He was the God-man who had Mediterranean blood in him as the human part. There were things that got him emotive. There were things that got him upset. And here, when he sees his temple turn into a marketplace, his heart erupts, and he goes, if you'll allow it, postal. He's knocking tables over. He's throwing people around. I grew up in Africa. I've been in the Arab world for 30 years. I know what a Middle East African market's like. There's chickens, there's smells, there's camels, there's brilliant clothes, there's spices, there's stolen watches. Everything is available there in a cacophony of noise and excitement and movement. Would it work for us to go into one of those Middle Eastern markets and say, oh, excuse me, we kind of need this place for prayer. Would you take your stolen wares and exit stage left? You think that's going to work? Jesus gets violent. Jesus gets visceral. He is, John says, forming a whip and beating animals, something. But he's laying hands on people and driving them out of the temple. And he quotes Isaiah 56. Do not let the foreigners say there's no place for me in God's house. Don't let the eunuchs say, here I am, a dry tree. For even to them will be given a place better than sons and daughters. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is apostolic nasty. And in Jesus' heart, if something got in the way of the gospel going to all the nations, he got angry and he got rid of it. My question for us this morning is this. What's in your temple? What's in your head? What's on your phone? What are you watching on Netflix? What's on your computer? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? Where are your energies? Have we monetized the church? Have we turned it into a, a business and something that excludes those who are different, something that precludes those who are foreign? Because we're no different than the institution of the temple. We, the church, we, the people of God, if we do not align our energies, our resources, our passions to fight for the glory of Jesus in all the earth, he's going to shut us down. You might be saying, well, that's the one-off Jesus. The rest of the time, he was all meek and lowly. Well, let's just go back three chapters into Mark chapter 8. Jesus has taken his disciples on a missions trip. He's going to the city of Caesarea Philippi. You can see this in verses 27 through 38. It's a pagan town. It's not Jewish. It's vile. It's sensual. It's violent. It's immoral. 
They had a law in the books that at some point you couldn't even walk through Main Street unless you were naked. They would kill their children, sacrifice them to idols. They had a pit in a cave where they'd throw those dead children. That pit in that cave was euphemistically called the gates of hell. And Jesus stands in front of those gates of hell in a pagan town on an intentional missions trip after Peter confesses him as Christ. And he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the disciples cheer and they're all excited because we all want to be part of something that's catalytic and the advance of the church. And he's making a point, Jesus is, that there is no pagan town, there is no unreached people where the church will not prevail. The kingdom will advance and they're all excited and they want to be a part of that. And then in the next verses, Jesus says, and oh, by the way, in order for the church to knock down the gates of hell, I must return to Jerusalem, I must be rejected, I must suffer, and I must die. At which point Peter says, oh no, Lord, that will never happen to you. And then the text tells us that Jesus looked at all the disciples as if to include them in what he's about to say and turns to Peter and what does gentle Sunday school flannel graph Jesus say to his own team member, his own staff member, his own disciple? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And in the verses that follow that, he says, you have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, and you have to follow me. That's apostolic nasty. Jesus running over his own Peter, his own disciple. Get behind me, Satan. If you are not aligned with the gospel going to the ends of the earth, and the pathway through that the cross, suffering, denial, death to self over and over again. If you're not mindful of that, Peter, get out of my way because I'm going to the cross and from the cross to the nations and that's what I'm about. And if you want to align your heart with Jesus, you're going to have to embrace the cross and the nations in that order. And something about you is going to have to die on a daily basis. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you follow Jesus. But however you denied yourself yesterday is not enough for today. You have to deny yourself today. How today have you denied yourself for the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth? That's what Jesus is interested in. And it's not enough to be 80% dead. You don't get to resurrection power that we're going to celebrate on Easter unless you're all the way dead. You wriggle off your cross at 40%, 70%, 90% dead. You don't get resurrection power. You want resurrection power all the way dead. Every day. For the glory of Jesus and the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's apostolic nasty. A consecrated edginess. Fixate on the worth of Jesus and his glory amongst all the nations. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, we have that famous verse where Paul says, I want to know Christ. Amen. I want to know the power of the resurrection. Amen. What comes next? 
and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so that by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. What's the context for the sufferings of Jesus? The redemption of the nations. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Not just for mid-America. He died for the Japanese and the Russians and the Papua Guineans and from the Australians and for all the nations of the world. That's the context, and he suffered in order to accomplish it. And Paul is on to something here. He's saying there is a unique knowledge of Jesus that we can only know if we follow him to the nations and suffer for doing so. Not suffering because you're white. Not suffering because you're black. Not suffering because you're Republican. Not suffering because you homeschool. Not suffering because you don't vax or didn't mask. None of that. But when you leave home and you leave everything that's comfortable and you suffer with Jesus for the redemption of the nations, there's a knowledge of God there that cannot be found in an air-conditioned church or in a nice, comfortable living room or in a happy little clappy youth group. None of those things are wrong. But if you want to know Jesus at the profound level that Paul experienced, leave home and suffer for the redemption of the world. So don't feel sorry for missionaries and don't feel sorry for the persecuted church. They know Jesus better than you do. And there should be a holy jealousy within you. I want to know Jesus that way. I want to embrace the cross daily. I want to be all the way dead so that I can live for the glory of Jesus in all the earth. Why? So we can all go home. Apostolic nasty. You might be saying, well, that's Jesus, and he's the son of God. Well, what about Paul? We know that before Paul was converted, he had some nasty in him, right? He's persecuting the church. He's throwing Christians in prison. Then we know about the Damascus Road. And then we know that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. And somehow we think that Paul got all nice and fluffy after his conversion. Same guy that wrote 1 Corinthians 13 wrote Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you so soon leave the gospel of grace to follow that of works? You might as go the whole way and castrate yourself. Don't get mad at me, pastor, that's in the Bible. I rebuke Peter to his face, he said, playing the hypocrite with the Gentiles, and then when the Jews show up, he won't eat with them anymore. John Mark, you're off the team. How's that for member care? Guys causing confusion in the church, turn them over to Satan for the redemption of their souls. To the head of the Sanhedrin, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And the same guy that wrote the love chapter, three chapters later in 16, closes the epistle to Corinth by saying, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. In all of those instances, something, an ideology, a behavior, a choice, a person, was getting in the way of gospel expansion to the ends of the earth, and Paul would not tolerate it. And like Jesus, if anything got in the way of the mission of God, inside, outside, he ran it over. Apostolic nasty. And he, like Jesus, was willing to suffer and pay any price for gospel advance. 
We see this in Acts chapter 16. You can turn there if you want. It's the, want. It's the story of Paul going to Philippi. Lydia gets saved. The brethren are mentioned a church in her house. A demon girl who's bringing money for her handlers by telling the future is, is, has a demon cast out of her. So her handlers get upset. Their hope of profit is gone. And so they take Paul and Silas over to the magistrates. The magistrates strip them, bloody them up, beat them, put them in prison, chain them to a wall. And then from there, an earthquake happens. Philippian jailers, household gets saved. And at the end of all of that, the magistrates come back to Paul and Silas who are still sitting in the prison. They don't run away when the earthquake happens and says, will you please just leave the city? At which point Paul says, nope, I'm a Roman citizen. Well, what's going on here? In that culture, Greek, Roman culture, you had patron clients. Patrons had the power. They would give a benefit, and then the clients would render service. At the beginning of the story, the magistrates are the patrons. They have the power. They beat Paul and Silas and put them in prison. What they did not know was that Paul was Roman. And Roman law also said that no citizen could be punished without due process. They had to go to trial. So when they beat a Roman citizen without a trial, there is a power inversion, and now Paul has the power, and all he has to do is report those magistrates to the Roman governor, and they lose their status, they lose their income, they lose their place in society. So they come cap in hand, we didn't know you are Roman, please don't cause us any trouble, and just leave town. But it begs a question for us. If Paul had status, if he had the Roman card, if all he had to do was stand on his privilege and not be beaten and not be incarcerated, why didn't he establish that before all the trouble? Why does he stand on that after being beaten and put into prison? And I think the answer is given in the last verse of Acts 16, where right before Paul leaves town, he goes back to Lydia's house and visits the brethren. You know what he's doing culturally? You see this woman? See the church in her house? She's with me. Now I have the power. I'm leaving town. But if you lift one finger to touch this church or this woman, I'm coming back to town. I'll report you to the authorities. Life as you know it is over. Keep your hands off the church. And if Paul would have stood on privilege, Lydia is undefended, that little baby church is unprotected, and the Philippian jailer and his family do not get saved. So here's my question. Are you willing to lay down your Roman card? It's not sinful to be American and live in the Midwest. Nothing wrong with having access to Chick-fil-A. Nothing wrong with living near grandparents. Nothing wrong with having an IRA and comfortable retirement. Nothing wrong with having a second car or maybe a cabin at the lake. Nothing wrong with any of that. It's not sinful to be an American. But is anyone here willing to lay down that card of privilege for the sake of the Lydias and the jailers around the world? Is there anyone here that says, I won't stand on my rights or my benefits or be near my family? I will lay it all down for Jesus and for the gospel. If that is sparking in you, even in these moments, you've got some apostolic nasty in you. And that's beautiful. 
And may the Lord fan that spark into flame. And may the Lord use you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and establish the church by those gates of hell. Why? So we can all go home. You might be saying, well, that's Jesus, and that's Paul, the super apostles, and the Son of God. Well, we also have the story in John 12, if you want to flip there, of Mary. Mary, as you know, had been a prostitute. She had been rejected by men and then wonderfully delivered by Jesus. And to set the context of her story, and I'll just close with this. Where we live in Saudi Arabia, men have a private sitting room. They put couches on four walls that are at floor level, carpeted, it's air-conditioned, it's beautiful, but it's only for the men. In fact, women of the house, let alone women of the street, are not allowed in there. Servants are not allowed in there. They'll bring a tray with coffee and dates and cake. Knock on the door, the youngest male will get that tray and then serve everyone. It's a hallowed space. It's, it's holy ground. It's sacred to the men. Into such a setting, picture Mary coming. What courage it took for her to contravene cultural norms and come into that sanctity, for men at least, where she was not invited, not wanted, and not allowed. It's scandalous. Because Semitic culture, whether in the Arabian Peninsula or Palestine in the time of Jesus, was very similar. Women just wouldn't go in that room. But she was so fixated on Jesus that she goes into that space and adds intimacy to scandal. Not only is she there, the men recoiling, she begins to cry. She touches Jesus. That's a no-no. She begins to anoint his feet with the perfume from her alabaster box and wash his feet with her hair. This is beyond scandalous in its intimacy. It's inappropriate, but she doesn't care because she's fixated on Jesus. She will do anything to get to Jesus. And that alabaster box of perfume, they tell us, was her dowry or a year's salary. And in fact, it was so extravagant that people murmured, why this waste? And then Jesus says, what this woman has done is to prepare me for burial. And wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be recorded as a testimony to her so we just fulfilled his prophecy again. And here's my point. When was the last time you were accused or criticized for being wasteful, prodigious, on Jesus? Have you ever been accused of that? Has anyone ever told you you're spending too much time and money on Jesus? We have that opportunity. We have that invitation. That also is apostolic nasty. I want to close as pastor prepares to come how I opened. America is not your home. And our energies and our ambitions should not be primarily directed at preserving or establishing a culture that is passing away. By all means, let us be salt and light but there's a bigger game afoot. The return of the king in power and glory. And we are told in Matthew 24, verse 14, that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world to every nation as a witness 
and then the end will come. It is to that day that we, the people of God, must press. It is to that day that our prayers and our giving and our going must be aligned. To be with Christ is far, far better. To die is gain. And that's what it means to be a kingdom builder. We are pressing towards that day when around the throne of God will be a multitude of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. So extravagantly, wastefully, we give our prayers, we give our finances, we give our sons, we give our daughters, we send our very best. And please, don't send to the nations the ones that you can't put to work here at home. Don't send us Billy Bob because he can't lead worship. Don't send us Sister Sally because she can't do anything in the church. Well, we don't know what to do with these guys. They're kind of weird. Let's bless Pakistan with them. It's not helpful. (laughs) We want your best. We want your Paul and your Barnabas. We want the ones you can't afford to send. We want your pastor Nathan's. We want the cream of the crop. And by we, I mean he, the king of kings, deserves your best. Your best prayers, your best energy, your greatest financial sacrifice, and the people you can't afford to send. That's what it means to be a kingdom builder. That's what it means to bring back the king. Would you close your eyes and bow your head?